The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So this is our fifth Sunday in our new building, this new place that we are calling home. And I was thinking about moving into a space when Casey and I first got married. Maybe you guys have had an experience like this, whether it's with uh, a roommate or just in your house or a spouse or whatever. We're coming together as two people with two sets of goods, and we're coming into this new space, and we've got to figure out what we're going to keep, what we're going to get rid of, and what we're going to store. And kind of by, you know, by the end of the time, we probably got rid of most of my stuff that I just kind of hodgepodge together from Goodwill and Miracle Hill and from people just giving it to me and taking it from my grandparents' house. We then keep a lot of what Casey has had. She's accumulated some nicer things that are um, more enjoyable to, to be around. Uh, but then we have this room in our house. Um, you know, we're just recently married. We have our, our bedroom. We have a guest room. And then we have this kind of third room. What do we do with it? Uh, we called it our office, and we put desk in there. But then really it just became the junk room. I don't know if you guys have ever moved into a new house, a new dorm room, a new apartment. You've brought in a parent. You've brought in a child. You've tried to push a child out. But then somehow just stuff accumulates, and you just have boxes that maybe don't end up unpacked for six months, 12 months, two years go by, three years go by, and they're still those same boxes. I bet some of you I'm interested to know who has the oldest box in this room. Come up to me afterwards. You've been in your house for 15 years. There's still three boxes in the attic you've never even looked at. You don't even know what is up there. Casey and I, so we had this junk room. We just piled everything in there until we were forced to move. And then we had to figure out, we were moving to Kenya. We could only take six bags with us. We had a small attic space in my parents to store stuff. And so we had to finally go through the boxes that we had packed up to move into this house. Now we're moving out of this house, not going to take this stuff with us. And now we got to figure out, are we going to keep it or do we need to throw it away based on the little space that we have? And so maybe this has been the same for you when you've organized your house. Maybe there are still boxes in your house, stuff stored away in the attic. To organize a house requires kind of almost, uh, in, in a way that's uh, kind of counterintuitive, it requires time, it requires foresight, it requires understanding of what you want your home to be, what you want your apartment to be, what you want your dorm room to be. There, you need a plan to execute and get everything in the right place. Maybe there's a living room, maybe there's a dining room, maybe there's bedrooms. How do you want those rooms to be used? Maybe you want a playroom, maybe there's uh, a closet that can be storage. What is the plan for that space? And really how we use our spaces make a point and they emphasize something. We're, we, we almost tell a story by how we organize our space. I think about two living rooms that I have personally had. The first one, right after I graduated, lived with uh, three other guys. We're trying to live as, you know, as cheaply as possible. Um, we're living uh, kind of just north of downtown Greenville. 
but we want to prioritize community. That's, that's what we're going to kind of emphasize. And so in our house, kind of to the chagrin of, of my wife, um, we, were, we were dating at time, we had what we called the square in our living room. We just accumulated four couches, who knows from where, who knows what it had in it, and we just put it in a nice square. So the four uh, roommates, we would just sit on the couch. We had a nice couch to lie on, each of us. In the evenings, we would keep it dark. We didn't want to run up the power bill. We kept it on, you know, 55 if it was cold, you know, if we're in the winter, probably 80 if it was summer. We're trying to live as cheaply as possible sitting in the dark, and we're just going to talk. We're going to pray. We're going to encourage each other towards evangelism. Maybe we have a little TV in the side. We might end up watching a little TV. We, we're telling a story by how we organize our space. Or if you've been in my home uh, today, Casey and I kind of purposefully have a lot of our couch facing outward, kind of facing where our dining table is, where our kitchen is, and, and not towards the TV. For a purpose, we do maybe enjoy a TV. We enjoy a movie every now and again, but we kind of want to push people out to talk with each other. So the same is true for us. This building tells a story, and we are shaping this space. We are caring for it, and by God's grace, and through pretty much all of you, we have unpacked most of our boxes. Now there's going to be a lot of ongoing care that has to happen, but we've gotten our boxes unpacked. We do have our places where we're kind of storing stuff. Stuff just kind of gets thrown. We thought we lost all of the legs to the high chairs for our members meeting with all of these little ones around. We thought we lost them all. They were just stored in a bin way in the back corner of the mechanical room down here. I had to go find them one day and be sure we, we, we had those. But the physical space is not our primary focus. Ridgewood Church is not a building. The church is not a building. Now, we've been a local church for eight years now. Our meeting location where we met did not change the fact that we were a church. We are the same church with the same mission to make Christ known. We're not finally becoming a church now that we have a space to call our own. We've been a, a church that's light on our feet, but we've still been a church. We've had some boxes that we couldn't unpack, and I think you guys have experienced. We had many boxes that we had to unpack and then repack week after week, Sunday after Sunday. And now, again, in kind of God's kindness, we get to unpack boxes. We don't have to stack chairs. We don't have to pack up all of the sound stuff and the music stuff. But we're thinking about the church. So people in this room this morning have a wide variety of backgrounds with the church. Now many of you in here have an extensive background with the church, years, even decades. But many of us are maybe stepping foot in a church gathering for the first time in years, decades, maybe even the first time ever. We all have vastly different backgrounds, relationships, and experiences with the church. We have different denominations. We have people, churches that you've been a part of, Southern Baptist churches, independent fundamental Baptist churches, Pentecostal, Presbyterian. I grew up in the Methodist church, all kinds of backgrounds. We have different frequencies of our gathering with the church body. Some of us are, have been at the church every time the doors are open. That's how we grew up. I've heard some of you tell your story, and you'll use the language. Every time the doors are open, our family was there. Maybe the same is still true for you. 
Maybe, maybe you're here half the time. You're, you gather with the church half the time because of work or other obligations or maybe even other priorities. Maybe you gather with the church on Easter and Christmas or maybe you never gather with the church and somehow you've ended up here this morning and we're so glad to have you. Some of us, our fondest memories are from the church or from the gathering of the church. And some of us, our worst memories are from the gathering of the church or from a church building. Some of us have greatly benefited from the beauty and brokenness of the church. And some of us see hypocrisy in the church and are wrestling through bitter, bitterness and anger. No matter your experience, no matter what you think you know or don't know, it's helpful to spend time talking about the beauty and the importance of the church. And we thought it especially relevant with this monumental shift for our local church to talk about the church. Now, we are mostly physically unpacked. There's still plenty of things to maintain a house or maintain a building, but the church is not about a building. We want to take time to talk about the church. So our definition of a local church that we're going to use over the next few weeks, a group of Christians who regularly gather to preach the gospel, observe the ordinances, and live together as a family. Trevor and I were wrestling through what definition we should use, how we should define it. We were sitting in a coffee shop. We were at a, a conference this week in North Carolina, and we were wrestling. We were looking up all of these definitions, and this is kind of where we landed. And I know there can be many types of definitions, but this is what we're going to kind of think through and try to flesh out. The local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather to preach the gospel, observe the ordinances, and live together as family. Now, the next five weeks, we thought it would be helpful to kind of metaphorically unpack our boxes of what it means to be the church. We're going to speak directly to the nature, meaning, and purpose of the church. We're going to answer questions like, what is the church? Whose is it? How is it built? What does it mean that the church is built? Who makes up the church? We're going to think about who we are why we do the things we do, and what we hope to see from our church. A house or a building is really more useful when we understand who the family is or who the organization is that is taking up that space and what they hope to accomplish. We desire to understand who we are as a local church. So we're calling this series The Church That Jesus Builds And it stems from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, uh, what Bryce just read. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We want to take five words, I will build my church. We're going to take that statement, and we're going to take each of these five words and cover them over the next five weeks. So next week we'll hear from Trevor and he's going to talk about will and he'll be coming from Revelation. This morning our goal is really to, to understand the church and understand who Jesus is. 
So let's read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, as we think about the I, and I will build my church. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus starts off asking his closest disciples, who do people say that I am? How do people identify me? So kind of the first question on the table is, who is Jesus according to the people? Now, they give a variety of answers. They give uh, mostly answers of people who are dead, who they think Jesus is now kind of reincarnating. Some in very recent past, like John the Baptist, who has just died, and others, more uh, these Old Testament figures who have lived 400, 500, 600, 800 years prior, like Jeremiah and Elijah. So that's who they think Jesus is. And then the, the question narrows in to the disciples. Jesus is interested in who their answer, in their answer to the question, who is Jesus according to his closest followers, according to his disciples? Now, Peter has really been, we, we had a, a, a long sermon series in Matthew, and he really ended up being a focus in Matthew that we would kind of continually point out. And he's been a focus in Acts so far in our series. He's present at Pentecost-like events in Acts. He denies Jesus in Matthew. We see crowds and we see individuals coming to the faith through his preaching, again, in the book of Acts. We talked about him being a disciple on the way throughout our, our preaching series through Matthew. Now, he pipes in in verse 16 to answer this question about who Jesus is. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, in verse 17, Jesus calls him Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. He calls him Simon, which is the name kind of formally given to him. And then Peter is his name, that kind of the, almost the nickname Jesus gives to him. And Jesus says that you did not get this answer from your intellect, from your reason, from science, from brain power, from flesh and blood. Simon gets this answer from God the Father who is in heaven through the work of the Spirit in him. And then verse 18 is really our key this morning and for our whole series. We get this kind of wordplay with you are Peter and on this rock... Peter and rock in a Greek dictionary are going to be words that are right beside each other. They're going to look almost exactly the same. They're almost spelled exactly alike. Jesus uses this wordplay to emphasize what he's going to do and who he's going to do it through. We know Jesus tells 
the truth. We know Peter is prominent. Peter is super important. We are essentially talking about him, it feels like, in almost every sermon that we're going through in Acts. And then we have the phrase, I will build my church. And so the I is our focus for this morning. So just to ensure abundant clarity, who is the I? In verse 17, we see that Jesus is the one speaking. So Jesus is the I. So our question for this morning is who is Jesus? Now, we can think that there are a variety of answers when we ask maybe who is someone? Who is Mikey? Who is Trevor? Who is any one of us? We can answer it in a variety of ways, not only now, but based on our past. We can answer the question maybe in a certain way when we are a child. We're growing up, there's certain things about you, we can answer the question in a, in a certain way. We get into our teenage years, we start to get into adult years, and then we, you know, we get our jobs, maybe we get married, maybe we get, have kids, maybe we have a mission, maybe whatever the Lord is doing in and through our lives, we start to answer the question differently based on our lives as we grow. Now, the interesting part for answering the question, who is Jesus, is we know that from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we answer the question, who is Jesus this morning, we, can ha- we are on solid ground to say this is still who Jesus is. Jesus has not changed. So we can find hope and joy as we answer this question this morning. Just to give a little bit of a roadmap for the next few minutes. We're going to answer the question, who is Jesus, in four ways based on this passage, and then we're going to go look at three ways that Jesus builds his church. So who is Jesus? The first way that we want to see who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the Son of Man. Verse 13, Jesus is the Son of Man. So this is a title that Jesus uses very often to refer to himself. Very little is somebody else referring to Jesus as the Son of Man. And now this phrase is just loaded with meaning. It emphasizes that that Jesus is the head of the human race. He gave a pattern to us of what a perfect man is, but then he also acted on our behalf. We see his humanity and we see his humility in this title But we also get in this title an emphasis on his messiahship, or even really almost this kind of low messiahship. He did not come in royal splendor, but he came in lowliness. He's fully God. He is fully deity. This phrase, son of man, throughout the gospels is tied to other phrases like the, with what abilities he has, the authority to forgive sins, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He came to seek and save the lost. He can rise from the dead. He can execute judgment. Things that are very lofty, that seemingly only God can do. And yet the Son of Man still comes as a baby. He hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. He tells uh, the children to come to him. 
Think about in uh, Matthew chapter 27, uh, verses 28 through 30, Jesus is, is right at the end of his life. He is about to be crucified, and we really see this almost Uh, This Messiah brought to this low spot. He is mocked, he is stripped, he is abused. But then in kind of an ironic turn of events, these people who are mocking him, abusing him, making fun of him, actually elevate him and treat him in ways that he should be treated. They give him a robe, which is uh, kind of a sign of royal splendor. They give him a crown, And yet it is a crown of thorns. They give him a reed like one who would rule with the scepter. And they even bow down before him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. They are saying and doing, in many ways, the right things. But their hearts don't actually know what is right. And they are attempting to mock him. Now, this son of man phrase, people get up in arms about uh, when Jesus uses it throughout the Gospels based on the Old Testament. Now, if you, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn to it. We're going to turn to Daniel chapter 7. So if you go back to pretty much the middle of your Bible, you'll land in Psalms and then flip to the right, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. We're going to get to see this son of man language used. And the one who takes on this son of man language is given power and is given rulership. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is Daniel speaking. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, kind of trigger some songs we sing referring to God. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus applies this Son of Man language to himself. Daniel, when he uses this phrase, sees the Son of Man with glory, authority, dominion, having an everlasting kingdom. And that is how Jesus refers to himself. So there's both humanity and deity tied up in that Jesus is the Son of Man. Going back to to Matthew 16. So first we see Jesus as the Son of Man. Second, we see Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Now, I don't know if you growing up uh, were like me, but contrary to super popular opinion... Christ is not Jesus' last name. So, I don't know if you've ever heard, just Jesus Christ is just said all, all around. In many ways, I thought growing up, Christ was Jesus' last name. It's not exactly right. It is, a, it is a title given to him. Also, not a great thing to, to just say, to uh, take in vain that maybe we do when we get frustrated. 
This is a title that signifies that Jesus was sent by God as a king and as a deliverer. Christ is uh, the Greek word. Uh, the Hebrew word is Messiah. So maybe you've, you've also heard Messiah. These two words, they mean anointed one. One who is promised to come throughout all of Israel's history to save them, to bring about the kingdom, to get the full taste of God's kingdom. One who's going to restore hope. One who will deliver his people. Now we're thinking here, if, if you are not a follower of Christ in this room, if you're kind of interested or, or thinking about who, who is Jesus, and is this someone I can follow? Is this someone I can commit my life to? I would encourage you that, that you are a sinner, just like me, just like everyone in this room. We are, we are filled with sin to our very core, and yet, by God's grace, a solution has been given. One has come, Jesus Christ, the one who is Messiah, the one who is king, the one who is God himself, and yet takes on our sin, takes on our burdens, takes on our shame, takes on whatever you are struggling with, wrestling with, carries it in himself, becomes sin so that we could become righteous. And we can become righteous as we turn to Jesus by faith, as we trust in him, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the king, the one who is the deliverer. So Jesus is the son of man. Jesus is the Christ. Third, Jesus is the son of the living God. So verse 16, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So these are three of probably the most uh, used phrases or used titles of Jesus in the Gospels, and we get them all together. Now, Jesus is not God's son uh, like I am a son. I am, I am the son of, of Doug Markham. Samuel Markham is my son. God did not get married to Mary and then have a son. That's not how this sonship works. It, it, does, it is a helpful picture and it does help point us, but Jesus is God's son in that he is God incarnate, one person of the Godhead. He's God in human form, John chapter 1. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. Jesus is the one all things were created through and for. He is God himself. He is equal with the Father eternally begetting or sharing of the same nature with the Father. Now, we can rightly be called sons and daughters of God, but we are adopted or, or grafted in as God's sons and daughters. Jesus is God's one and only son in a unique class by himself. Now, we do become co-heirs with him, but Jesus uniquely shares the same divine nature. And then he, as a choice and as part of the Father's will, takes on the sins of the world and bears God's wrath for sinners like you and me. No one else could do this. No one else is God. Only Jesus 
can bear the weight of our sins. So Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God is God. Jesus is God made manifest. Now, very interestingly, these three titles are tied together here in Matthew 16 in very close fashion. One other place I want to flip is just to Matthew 26, verses 63 through 67. And we're going to see the same three titles tied to Jesus. And when these three titles, when Jesus says, yes, that is me, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Christ... What happens at the end of this passage? We'll see. Verse 63 in chapter 26 of Matthew. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. His blasphemy is that he is claiming to be God. A human is claiming to be God. That is blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then this one who is the Christ, the son of man and the son of the living God, they spit in his face. They struck him and some slapped him. This perceived blasphemy leads to Jesus' condemnation. They are not willing to hear that Jesus has these three titles, that Jesus is God. And so we're answering the question, who is Jesus? And so I pray that you would be able to see who Jesus is And that you would be able to to trust in him. That you would be able to live in accordance with who Christ is. Now each of these three titles can kind of maybe feel like Jesus is distant from us. But in reality all three of them bring him very close. He is our savior. He is the one who takes on our sin. But this last one I think shows very clearly how close Jesus is with us. Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. So number four, Jesus is the personal builder of his church. Jesus is the personal builder of his church. Just like no one else can bear our sins, no one is capable of building the church except Jesus. No pastor, no matter how, Great or not great, we are no deacon, no member, no committee, no entity is going to build the church except Jesus himself. Jesus is personally responsible for the church. He is active in building our local church. He's present here with us. When we gather corporately, when we gather as groups, when we gather over breakfast or lunch or dinner to encourage and pray for one another, the one who carries such prominent titles is personal and connected with his church. He is not far off. He is not distant. He is intimately involved. 
He's in front. He is beside. He is within. He is below. He is above. He is behind. He is building his church. Jesus is not a remote God that we have to conjure up with with great prayers or great song or just our greatness in general. I think about a passage like uh, Trevor brought to my attention uh, earlier this week, 1 Kings 18, where Elijah and the prophets of Baal Baal are essentially going to have a battle to see whose God is the real God. And so they're going to build an altar and they're going to put a sacrifice on the altar. And so there's 450 prophets of Baal. And they build this altar and they start saying these prayers to try to get Baal uh, to light on fire their sacrifice. Essentially, whoever's uh, sacrifice catches fire first, that's who is the real God. And so all these prophets of Baal, they're kind of walking around. And then it, it, it's really interesting. After about four hours, it seems like the, the language is almost they're, they're limping around. They're getting so tired of calling their God, trying to conjure up their God. And he's not listening. Baal is nowhere to be found. And Elijah just starts mocking them, saying, where, where is Baal? Is he relieving himself? Is he using the bathroom? What is, what is he doing? Can you not get him? Is he sleeping? And then finally, Elijah starts to build his altar and puts his sacrifice on. And he says, pour just tons of water on a sacrifice. Now, I don't know a lot about how to start a fire. I know a bunch of people I think are even camping this weekend from our body. A lot of you guys maybe love camping. I'm terrible at camping. I don't know how to light a fire really well. I don't know how to really do anything like that. But I do know water does not help a fire get started. Wet wood is not a good way to get a fire started. So Elijah just soaks it in in water, and then he prays. And he asks God to come. And God shows up, and it says that uh, God dried everything up. It's like as dry as a desert He lights on fire this sacrifice, and he takes all of the water. Our God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is personal and near. Unlike Baal, unlike any other God we can conjure up or dream about, Jesus is personal and he is here. Now, how does Jesus personally build his church? So three ways we want to think about how Jesus builds his church. And notice the word personally is going to be in each of these phrases because Jesus is personal in how he does this. Jesus is personally committed to his church. Jesus is personally committed to his church. He is more committed to us than we are to him. We are frail, we are weak, we are sinful, We go uh, a wayward way. He is with us in good and hard times. He helps his church persevere. God, through the ongoing uh, ministry of the Spirit and through the finished work of Christ, will keep his church. He is committed to his church. Jesus is the cornerstone on which the church is built. A wise man builds his house on a rock. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. And our church, the church in general, is built on a rock. I think about our Living Stone series from a year and a half ago. We went through First uh, Peter 2. And it talks about Jesus being a chosen, chosen and precious 
cornerstone that is rejected. Christ is the cornerstone. He is a solid rock that we can be relying upon. Now, we do get a phrase like Peter uh, and this connection with, with him being a rock, with really him being a vital living stone, just like we are living stones. And obviously, Peter does great work in his ministry, but we are built on Jesus, the one who is the cornerstone. Our focus is on Jesus, not, not Peter, not like our um, kind of Catholic uh, friends who see Peter as kind of the one that the church is fully reliant upon. The church is fully reliant upon Jesus, who is the cornerstone, and he is committed to his church until his return. And we see phrases like, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The gates of hell, hell being on the defensive, the church being on the attack in many ways. The church will win because of Christ's commitment. Number two, Jesus is personally growing his church. Jesus grows his church by his means. Ephesians 2, uh, we looked at it a few weeks ago. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That was kind of Jesus' first means, was to raise up disciples and have the church be built on it. And he uses common, weak People. He uses fishermen. He uses people who persecute him. He uses sinners like you and like me. And the primary way of growth for the church is through the work of the Spirit. In our passage, chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus talks to Simon and says that the only way that this truth is revealed to him is by his Father who is in heaven, not by flesh and blood, but by the Father through the Spirit. And the same is true for us. The Spirit reveals Christ. He takes dead hearts and makes them alive. We were at this conference of, of pastors um, and leaders from the Pillar Network, a church planting um, group that we are a part of that uh, is kind of across the U.S. and in kind of Latin America and it's kind of making our way into, into Europe and in Scotland. And at one moment we were, we were singing, I don't, I don't, I think it might have been Yet Not I, but Through Christ and Me. And I was just standing there at a place that I went to seminary that invested in me for three years to, to teach me more of God's Word. And I was brought to tears in just thinking about 12 years ago, I would never ever have dreamed of or thought that I would be in any kind of gathering like I was then, or really like I'm in now, with you guys here, seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, seeking to give our lives together to Christ. I was running after the world. I was running after uh, everything that it had to give me, and it failed again and again and again because the world is not committed to me. Jesus is committed to us. Jesus is growing his church. And he does it by his spirit. And somehow, someway, I have no idea how the Lord got my attention. And somehow, someway, brought my dead heart and made it alive. And helped me see the beauty of 
of the gospel, that I am sinful and in deep need of a Savior. Passages like Ephesians 2 show us that that God, in the Spirit, is the one who converts. Salvation comes through the Spirit and in Christ. The growth of the church that Jesus brings is through the Spirit. And this happens both individually, hopefully you are more godly, especially if you're a member of our church, more godly through the ministry of our church over weeks and months and years together. But it also happens corporately. We are growing as a church. We are hopefully growing and honoring God and bringing glory to His name and seeing people turn by faith to Christ. The third way that we see Jesus personally involved with his church is that Jesus is personally caring for his church. Jesus is personally caring for his church. I'm going to turn to Ephesians 5. You can just listen to me, uh, or if you want to, to turn there as well, you're, you're, you're welcome to. This is a passage, uh, Ephesians 5, 22 to, to 33, that's often used of how Christ loves the church. That teaches us how we are to operate as husbands and wives, and it's super helpful. And when I was trying to figure out getting married to Casey and was just terrified of commitment um, and then when we got engaged, man, it just took me reading Ephesians 5 over and over and over and over again to see how I am to love and to give my life for my bride. But I want to think about it this morning almost in an, in an inverse way to think about how Jesus cares for his church. We want to learn about Jesus' love and his care through how a husband cares for his wife. So I just want to read a few verses uh, throughout Ephesians 5. Verses 22 and 23, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, Jesus is, is the head of the church. That is what we, what we learn here. But he's the head through service. Husbands serve and love and lay down their lives for their wives. And Jesus serves his church. He gives of his life. If there's ever any doubt that Jesus cares for you and cares for us corporately, we look to the cross. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And again, language like, he gave himself up for her. Jesus loves the church all of us husbands in here, I hope that you love your wives. And in many days, I know that it, it, it may be difficult, it may be hard, but, but by God's grace and through the work of the Spirit, hopefully we grow and we grow and we grow to love our wives. And we have some extraordinary men in this room and how they serve and love their wives. But that pales in comparison to how Christ loves his church. Right now, presently caring for it, but also in the way he gave his life. And then our final verse, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. A husband nourishes, 
cares for, loves, brings life to, protects. He nourishes and cherishes his wife. And Christ does that for us. He cares for us. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. He brings life. So, Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God who is the personal builder of His church. He is personally committed to His church, growing His church, and caring for His church. So, what do we do as a response to this? The first one is just trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Do you trust Him personally And do we trust him as a church to lead us, to guide us, and to care for us? In many ways, I bet, uh, if if we're probably being honest, over the last few years with, with COVID, with this building, with any number of other things that have gone on in the life of our body, it's asking, does Jesus care for us? Is he with us? What's he, what is he doing? How are we going to see him work? And yet we've been called to trust Jesus, and obviously, He's done some extraordinary things. Walk faithfully with Jesus. Pursue godliness. Pursue Christ. Don't sit back and be entertained. Worship God. Make Jesus known. Embody Christ in being committed to the church. Help the church grow through the proclamation of the gospel and care for one another. So my question is, are you making Jesus known? And are you caring for each other in the way that Christ cares for us? Jesus is with us. So let's turn by faith to Christ. Let's trust in him. Let's make him known. And let's see what God does with our church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you so grateful that we get to know you and worship you and sing your praises. Jesus, we thank you that you are the Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of of the living God. You are our Savior. You are the King. You are the ruler. You are perfect. You are all-knowing, all-loving, ever-present. And you didn't just love your people in your church 2,000 years ago. You were the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so you continue to love us today. Lord, I pray we would trust you as a church. I pray that we would uh, pursue you with all we have. pray that we would walk faithfully with you. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to make you known. We love you. Amen.